In the final quarter of 2020, the fight against COVID-19 rages on, and the most significant battlegrounds are our hospitals and research labs. That's why we spoke with Dr. Kevin Tabb about healthcare in the time of COVID-19, the virus's impact on point-of-care providers, and the vaccine that his hospital is developing with Johnson & Johnson. Dr. Tabb is president and CEO of Beth Israel Leahy Health in Boston, Massachusetts, a healthcare system which includes 13 hospitals, as well as four academic and teaching hospitals affiliated with Harvard School of Medicine and Tufts University School of Medicine. But even a system as robust as this one countered challenges in the face of the novel coronavirus. I think what's important to understand is that we, uh, Beth Israel Leahy Health, uh, we're a, a new system. So we're a system in formation uh, prior to COVID ever uh, appearing on the scene. We're only about a year and a half old. And so we were just in the throes of creating this new system, uh, uh, building out an infrastructure and um, sort of taking the first st steps towards behaving as a system of care when uh, COVID appeared on the scene. And um, you know, I think what that meant for us was that uh, this was all new. COVID was, of course, new for everybody, but even sort of facing uh, a significant crisis uh, as a system of care was new for us. So we had to gather the right people uh, and um, uh, put in place uh, all the things that we needed to do to make sure that we were going to be ready. Even gathering the right people, when you're a new system, People didn't know each other. And ironically, fast forward, we have, uh, I think, uh, phenomenal structures in place now and uh, people who have worked together well. One of the comments I heard recently was uh, how, how much people have really um, built relationships. They've never physically been in the room together. Despite the surprising circumstances and unfortunate timing, however, the idea of a pandemic occurring soon was not unthinkable. The question was simply, how prepared can we be, and will our expectations match the reality? It's not true to say that no one imagined that there could be a pandemic. Leaders in healthcare have been thinking about uh, how to get ready and the fact that it was inevitable that it, would, it, that it would occur eventually. So this idea that no one could possibly imagine uh, that we would we would have to face a pandemic as a healthcare system as a country as a you know the world that's not true, but it's also true uh, that things are very different in practice uh, you know in the reality of what what actually happens than what you uh, than what you practice for than um, what you imagine is going to occur and so I think yes things were in fact uh, different. The nature of the pandemic has also exposed flaws in our healthcare system as a nation. Measured against Europe, for example, what have we learned and what can improve as we move forward? I think that the fundamental underlying weakness that was exposed is not specific to the pandemic. The major difference between uh, typical healthcare systems in other first world countries in the United States is there is no such thing as an organized healthcare system in the United States. There's no cohesive, coherent uh, federal approach to healthcare. And, you know, we limp along, um, but when you have a national healthcare emergency like this, that's when the absence 
of a, uh, a strategic approach at the federal level and coordination at the federal level really becomes very obvious and, and sort of it reveals all of the problems uh, that we started to see, whether it's issues around the supply chain, whether it's issues around testing, whether it's issues around uh, getting out information uh, about uh, the right things to do. There was a complete and absolute vacuum at the federal level and um, you know that resulted in, I think, a lot of the problems and chaos that we saw. And that lack of a central message or directive likely added additional challenges to an existing crisis. In response, more local governments and individual healthcare systems like Beth Israel Leahy had to step up. We're lucky in Massachusetts that I think um, almost the opposite was the case here. This state was hit hard and hit early. Um, for a variety of factors, but we have a wealth of great uh, healthcare institutions in the state, and we also have a leadership uh, at the state level that um, sort of understands the importance of gathering everybody, of listening to uh, data and making decisions uh, based on it. And so, um, you know, I think that we benefited from that uh, and were able to uh, after that initial very bad wave, uh, bring things uh, under control. There was no uh, competition. Uh, what we were doing was uh, figuring out what we needed to do, how we could do things like load balance, uh, make sure that um, all of the patients that needed it were getting taken care of, uh, that hospitals that didn't have equipment uh, got it from other hospitals that did. Um, and that was really unprecedented. And, you know, that, that I think, was um, a silver lining in all of this. Such a large collaboration would demand quick and decisive leadership. How were those skills tested? What was immediately apparent was that we needed to gather that, that a single leader uh, couldn't uh, solve this problem, so to speak, um, but that you needed to gather uh, your best people, um, break down barriers for them, uh, and let their let them uh, do their work, and um, you, you know that that can be that can be hard. Um, but that's really the role of a leader in time of crisis, um, and I think beyond. So, um, you know, that was the single most important thing that I could do is to identify, uh, gather uh, the best leaders. Uh, and uh, make sure that we didn't put in place, uh, put any barriers in front of them and let them, let, let them do their work. Yet regardless of coordination and cooperation, a financial fallout was inevitable. Hospitals and healthcare systems across the country were stricken with astounding losses. Would financial assistance from congressional bills like the CARES Act be enough? So the CARES Act um, distributed dollars uh, to hospitals and and other uh and providers uh based on basically based on the number of covid patients that you took care of uh, in a time period and so um that was uh, very helpful and uh and certainly helped mitigate uh, some of the the serious uh, financial distress that we all experienced that being said it certainly did not cover anywhere near all of the losses and the expenses that we experienced. Uh, and then um, add to that the fact that we are still not back to uh, 100% of where we were. Those limited resources affect more than just hospital staff and those who've been infected with the coronavirus. 
there is a ripple effect on all patients and their relationship with their providers. Understandably, uh, patients are still reticent uh, to come back and get the care that they desperately need. Um, and uh, even in those situations where you know patients are, are at this point um, able and willing to come back, uh, just restructuring physically restructuring and re-changing our schedule, uh, schedules uh, for a pandemic environment, social distancing in a clinic, more turnover time in, in ORs, um, the kinds of uh, uh, cleaning requirements that are there, um, you know, mean that it, it, it is difficult to get back to uh, anywhere near 100% of uh, what you were doing before. Beyond just scheduling challenges, patients themselves are hesitant to return to hospitals just for fear of risk of exposure. Some confusion in early messaging led people to believe that they should avoid hospitals altogether. The intent was never, don't come to the hospital if you have an emergency. But we saw an emptying of the emergency rooms. We saw an emptying of... Um, you know, a significant drop in the number of cancer patients we're taking care of, in the number of, we saw a significant drop in the number of patients that came in with heart attacks. And then uh, we did start to see uh, nationally um, a rise in mortality that can't solely be explained uh, by COVID. And we think that that is one of the secondary effects. We're, we're actually very safe and I think, you know, have put in place the right uh, mechanisms to, uh, to keep our patients and our staff safe. People started to come back. We opened up uh, for uh, elective procedures and other things. But people are still uh, cautious and reluctant. Some terrifying stories to come out of other countries were overflowing hospitals and life or death choices being put on doctors who were overwhelmed with the sheer number of patients. Fortunately, it seems that the United States has avoided that fate, despite sometimes getting too close for comfort. Every patient that needed to get care got care. Uh, we never ran out of beds. Uh, we never ran out of equipment. We never ran out of ventilators. There were days, uh, and I can recall a few at the very, very height, where we had, you know, maybe... Uh, 10 or 12 ventilators left, um, but we never ran out. There were days, though, where there were other hospitals in our area that were very, very close to running out, and we, uh, we shifted equipment around to them. The ongoing education everyone in the healthcare industry was receiving also played a part in easing strains on the system. The more hospitals learned about COVID-19 and how to care for patients, the more they were able to distribute care accurately and efficiently. You know, that's in a variety of ways, whether it's uh, holding off longer uh, before uh, putting them on ventilators, uh, whether that's proning patients, in other words, turning them on their bellies, um, whether that's uh, use of uh, steroids uh, in severe situations. These are all things that we learned uh, during the pandemic and resulted ultimately in, in um a real change in the makeup even of hospitalized patients. So at the height uh, of the crisis, uh, we had um, uh, about a, th a third, somewhere between 35 and 40% of the patients 
that, were, that needed hospitalization for COVID in our system required ICU level care. That's no longer true. So we, at the moment, uh, in our system, we have about 40 COVID positive patients. That's throughout the entire system, 13 hospitals. Um, only uh, five or so of those 40 uh, uh, are in the ICU. So that gives you a, a sense of how, uh, how, how things have changed. So patient care has largely improved as we expand our knowledge of the virus and how to treat it. But what about hospital staff? A tremendous amount of emotional and physical stress has come down on healthcare workers. So what can we learn from this experience that helps those problems improve in the future? Our caregivers, and I, and I speak broadly about caregivers because I think you know, it was doctors and it was nurses and it was techs, and it, there are a lot of people and continue to be a lot of people involved in providing care. Our caregivers um, were heroic, um, and our caregivers uh, gave it everything that they possibly could, uh, but they are exhausted, and some of them are traumatized, and we're still uh, working through that even as we prepare uh, potentially for another wave. Um, one of the one of the challenges, as you know, as we have all grown more lean and efficient, uh, is there's very little slack in the system, um, and when uh, a wave hits you, it's very hard to expand quickly to meet uh, the needs of that wave. We're going to have to figure out because uh, I I don't uh, believe that this is the last time. Uh, that we're going to be hit uh, by a crisis of this uh, of this nature. Getting out of the current crisis, of course, is what's on everyone's mind. And we all hope for the most effective way to do that, the vaccine. There are several candidates in phase three trials right now, but the vaccine that Beth Israel Leahy Health has developed with Johnson & Johnson stands out among the rest with two key differences. One is that this would only require a single dose to be effective, and that's what they saw in phase one and phase two. And the second is that it does not require sub-zero refrigeration. And the combination of those two things, which are different about this vaccine than, uh, than others, really has the potential, if this works, and I want to be careful here and say that, you know, the fact that it is made to phase three uh, trials is great, but is not a guarantee that the vaccine will. But if this were uh, to ultimately pan out uh, and be both safe uh, and effective, being able to do this with a single dose and being able to do it without sub-zero refrigeration would be real game changers. If you think about um, uh, delivery to third world countries, if you think about um, uh, access, if you think about uh, the uh, willingness uh, to, to get vaccinated and uh, have more than one vaccine, really it would be significant if we could do this with one dose and not require sub-zero refrigeration. Reports on efficacy for the vaccines vary. Some suggest 60%, though these numbers have not been confirmed yet through testing. The thing to remember is this is not a binary, either it fully protects or doesn't protect at all. Uh, you could imagine, for instance, uh, that for those that have had the vaccine uh, and are not fully protected, so in other words, they get the vaccine and still uh, contract COVID, that they, it, it, it is, it's possible to imagine uh, that the COVID would be 
uh, less serious in those cases. And we see that with flu and, and other diseases. So if we could make this disease, um, you know, less, uh, uh, less severe uh, and less common, uh, that would be great. Another challenge that vaccine trials face is diversity. It's incredibly important uh, that uh, the trials enroll a population uh, that is similar to the population that is most heavily affected. And uh, we have traditionally in medicine struggled uh, to uh, recruit uh, for trials uh, in a way that really reflects the population that it needs to reflect. So what we know with COVID uh, is that it disproportionately affects people of color. So uh, we need to make sure that we test both uh, safety and efficacy in those populations too. And there's an understandable reluctance um, and hesitation on the part of many underserved uh, populations uh, to participate. Um, and we need to work harder uh, to explain uh, and to uh, make clear uh, that we will um, uh, keep this safe for those populations too. And in addition to fighting the virus, vaccines must also overcome a fundamental skepticism that runs deep through all demographics in American culture. There, there's a lot of mistrust out there, um, and I think that it's, um, uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, I think, um, um, you know, it, uh, vaccines have become uh, highly politicized, and that's pre-COVID, uh, made much worse the COVID era. Um, and, you know, that's, that's really uh, uh, of great concern, I think, to, to those of us that um, know how effective a vaccine can be. And after facing down this crisis, finding our flaws and meeting those challenges, hopefully to overcome them, what will we have learned? We need a public health infrastructure every bit as much as we need a roads infrastructure and a and a school infrastructure and everything else. And we've not uh, traditionally invested in uh, public health uh, in the way uh, that's needed. The small number of dollars that it would take uh, to, to really be a significant increase in investment in public health would pay off in, in spades. Um, if you think about the, the economic cost, not to speak of the cost of human suffering, uh, this pandemic brought upon us, so, not all of which, but some of which uh, could have been dealt with much more efficaciously with uh, good public health uh, infrastructure in place. You realize that it's, it's money well spent. So I hope coming out of this that there is a, a, a real bipartisan understanding and willingness uh, to, uh, to reinvest in public health. In that future where public health is a focus, Healthcare systems like Beth Israel Leahy can lead the way in community wellness beyond the typical clinical services that hospitals may be limited to today. What we know uh, is that more and more care is provided outside of the traditional acute care settings of a hospital. And um, that's a change that has long been in the making um, and I think uh, is will be accelerated uh, in the next few years. So when now when we build our healthcare system, we think not only about the hospitals that are part of this, uh, but you know, primary care practices, post-acute care, behavioral health in the community, um, uh, all of those sorts of things, and then, and then ultimately, uh, wellness programs. So not only thinking about 
patients uh, when they're sick, but thinking about patients as, as people. In other words, um, people don't spend most of their lives, hopefully, uh, being ill, and we need to prevent people in the first place from, from getting sick. So that's a, it's a real shift in the way that we think about healthcare. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's been a long time coming. And in just a year, will these systems begin to change? What does healthcare look like in the near future after having gone through the tumultuous era we're in now? I think almost certainly healthcare will look different than it does today. I'm not sure exactly how it will look. And I would say that one of the things that we discovered uh, during this pandemic, and I hope that some of us gained a little bit of humility, is, that, um, is how much we don't know. And things that we thought to be true only a few months ago turned out not to be true. So uh, there's no question that things will be different, but to know exactly how things will be different, you know, we're not sure. I think telehealth is a good example, though, of something that we're not going to go back on. We had very few patients that were actually uh, using it on a regular basis. It exploded uh, in a positive way uh, uh, during the pandemic and has continued now. So there was a, a point in time where we were... Uh, for our primary care visits, 90% of our primary care visits uh, were done through telehealth. That's now a decrease to about 30%, but 30% is a massive number. So our system will be fine. Uh, we're large and strong uh, and were hurt badly through this uh, pandemic, but we certainly have the, the wherewithal uh, to make it through to the other side. That isn't true for everybody. And it, it, it's disproportionately affecting, you know, smaller uh, independent hospitals, particularly those that serve rural areas. If those uh, hospitals go away, um, then you'll have communities that, that don't have access to care. And I think that, you know, I do worry uh, that that it w will be one of the outcomes. The longer term may have a more positive prognosis. If we actually learn from the lessons of the day and adjust our priorities accordingly, then the legacy of COVID-19 in healthcare may leave us stronger. My hope is that we actually build a resilient system of care in this country, that we find a way uh, to uh, put it on the national agenda, that we find a way to have uh, national, a national approach, cohesive, uh, collaborative approach to healthcare, not just during an emergency, uh, but during all of those other times also. And if the pandemic revealed all of the uh, deficiencies of not having a, a common approach, I, you know, my hope is that we start to uh, work on and correct that. For more on this and other topics, subscribe to this podcast and visit wealth.us.cibc.com. CIBC Private Wealth Management includes CIBC National Trust Company, CIBC Delaware Trust Company, CIBC Private Wealth Advisors Incorporated, all of which are wholly owned subsidiaries of CIBC Private Wealth Group LLC and the private banking division of CIBC Bank USA. All of these entities are wholly owned subsidiaries of Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. This document is intended for informational purposes only, and the material presented should not be construed as an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Concepts expressed are current as of the date of this publication only and may change without notice. Such concepts are the opinions of our investment professionals, many of whom are chartered financial analyst charter holders or certified financial planner professionals. Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards Incorporated owns the certification marks CFP and Certified Financial Planner in the U.S. There is no guarantee that these views will come to pass. Past performance does not guarantee future comparable results. The tax information contained herein is general and for informational purposes only. 
CIBC Private Wealth Management does not provide legal or tax advice, and the information contained herein should only be used in consultation with your legal, accounting, and tax advisors. To the extent that information contained herein is derived from third-party sources, although we believe the sources to be reliable, we cannot guarantee their accuracy. The CIBC logo is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Investment products are not FDIC insured, may lose value, and are not bank guaranteed.